0: Hello friends, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online, my name is Worth, if you are new, welcome, thanks for joining us, if not, welcome back. Uh, before we get too far into this, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe as well as hit the icon, icon, the like icon below, it's really going to help out our channel, help us spread the good news of Jesus here in West Seattle, um, and we're going to jump right in. A few weeks uh, ago, we introduced ourselves to Jacob, who is full of chutzpah, he has a zest, and tenacity where he's gonna grab everything there is to be had out of life he's a bit of a prodigal as well and the question is how many of us how many of you out there identify with this character Jacob one way or another if you said no well I'd argue that you're probably lying and that makes you just like Jacob actually because he was a liar too. see how that works but there are probably more than a few of you out there who don't like rules. Maybe you identify with that notion a little bit more. Maybe because of that you might have this idea that God doesn't really want to work with you until you snap to attention and you get in line, you get with the program. Uh, and so we talk about how God doesn't need to fix you up or have you get it all together before you are useful for him. And not only is there a place for you to partner with God and serve in his kingdom, but God seems to hinge the whole story on this Jacob character and characters like him. Seriously. Uh, Think about it this way. Out of all the patriarchs in Genesis, if you were to pick one that's going to be the father of the story and you'll name the nation after him, who would you choose? Not Jacob. He's the most dysfunctional. He's the one that, that messes everything up. But God chooses him. And I've said this before, but I think that's because God's kingdom works backwards. It's, it's opposite. It's switched sides. It's upside down from the way we think it, it should go. So the first week when we were talking about Jacob, we said there's a place for the Jacobs. And so after that, we talked about how Jacob and Laban, how they kind of lock horns. And we see how much of a self-centered control freak Jacob really is. He works for Laban for years trying to control the situation. Something that none of us can relate to, of course, (laughs) Uh, like if he could just manipulate the variables, if he can just pull the right levels and turn the right knobs, he can control the situation and he'll finally get the wages that he's due. If he can just work harder, if he can outsmart more people, then he'll finally get what he wants. And when he realizes it doesn't work, does he learn his lesson or does he double down on his dysfunction? He totally doubles down on dysfunction and it still doesn't work. And then he does it again and again. And then last week, Jacob wrestled with God. And he's about ready to be reconciled to Esau. And God changes his name. And he has this God moment. And God changes his name. And then it's kind of like, hooray, Jacob. But no. Even though he's had this God moment, Jacob still struggles. And that's what I like about Jacob. Jacob's story is like our story. It's like my story. We can relate to him. We all have Jacob moments, moments of self-revelation. And then then what do we do? We go home to our families or significant others and we're like, guess what? I've discovered all my flaws and the things that are my hangups. And from now on, it's just going to be awesome and full of love. And I'm never going to be a control freak anymore. But that's not what happens. It's actually a process. It's a journey and it takes some time where we discover all these things about ourselves and we search out our identity in Christ. And God continues to show us who he knows we really are and how all these other things we've become are about our insecurities, really, and our false beliefs and false idols about ourselves and about others. But as we work hard and struggle with these things, we walk this path with God, with faithfulness as we try to be faithful, and he transforms us because he's been faithful to us the whole time, no matter what, even when we're not. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean... We have to keep showing up we have our moments with god but afterwards we leave that moment and we go back to what we know and jacob is the same after he wrestles with god jacob's like hey esau i hope we can be friends (laughs) it's kind of paraphrasing and esau's like yeah sure you should come home with me now and jacob's like no i'll meet you there and esau's like no you should really come with me right now and he's like no 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 really i'll hang back and i'll meet you there and where does he go? Does he go to where Esau is? He, no, he goes to Sukkot, not to Seir. Basically, even after this God moment where he's changed his name, Jacob is not automatically this reformed guy. And so the next story, I i, I don't want to talk over it, but the next story, Genesis 34, is really the story of uh, Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And, and First thing I want to do is I don't want to go past it because here's the thing. Churches don't know how to talk about and deal with uh, sexual abuse or abuse in general. Churches have primarily even struggled to acknowledge that it exists, and and that's a really big deal. It's a thing that they, they don't want to deal with. So I don't want to glance over it because for some of you, forget Jacob, Dinah is your story. And at the same time, I don't want to pontificate on and act like I'm an expert when it comes to something that I need to learn a lot more about. And one of the most destructive things pastors and churches have done is act like because we're theologians, we should be able to pontificate on these things that we are not experts in. But that story of Dinah, after she is raped, it ends with kind of this further proof that Jacob is not this changed guy. Like, after the story's over and the sons of Jacob go out to avenge the abuse of their sister, Jacob's daughter. And we could debate whether, he, you know, they did the right thing or not. The Midrash is on both sides of the fence on that one. But what's not really a, a discussion is Jacob's response at the end of the story. He's like, well, now you've gone and done it. You ruined my reputation with the Shechemites. And we're like, Seriously? that's basically, I mean, that's basically what he says. Let's just say that Jacob just isn't there yet. And it'll make sense when we get through this. Here's the thing I want you to notice about the story from the text. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel, but what does the author who's writing the story continue to call him? The author continues to call him Jacob. He doesn't call him Israel after that God moment, not even once, not until the passage we're looking at today. So, God changes his name, but it doesn't take, and I think that's because it doesn't take root inside of Jacob's heart. So let's go to the passage in Genesis 35, starting in verse 6. It says, Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel in the land of Canaan. And there he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alambakuth. After Jacob returned from Padam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel, which is kind of like deja vu. Because God already said this after the wrestling match in Genesis 32, which begs the question, does God have to change his name twice? And the answer is no, I I don't think so. And here's where I've landed on this. The name Israel is a conjunction. Isra, which means conquered or victorious, and then El, which means God. So he was named Israel because the first time he wrestled with God, who wins? Jacob wins, essentially. And if you're wondering why I said that, it's because that's what the text actually says in Genesis 32, verse 28. It says, you've wrestled with God and emerged victorious. So the first time he wrestles with God and he wins, which makes me wonder if in this story, is Jacob going to wrestle with God again? And then is God going to win? Because the name Israel can really go both ways. It can be conquered God or God conquered. In other words, You conquered God, or God conquered you. So is there an allusion here to the idea, yeah, Jacob, you're so crafty and tenacious. You win the first round, but this time, it's God's turn. Now, those are just my thoughts when I was doing the research on this, but here's what we can say for sure. He got his name changed, and it didn't take, because he's Jacob in the text all the way up until this story. So he named him Israel, and again, in Genesis 35, God reminds him of the name change and tells him of the blessing he gave his forefathers, Abram, Abraham and Isaac. And then we come to verse 16, which says, Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. And as she breathed, her last, for she was dying. She named her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow or grief. But his father named him Benjamin is what it says. And Benjamin means son of my right hand. So probably what's going on here is Jacob is like, I can't have my son named after my wife's grief for the rest of my life. So he doesn't name him Ben-Oni. He names him Benjamin, son of my right hand, which means favored. Verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal-Eder. So something significant has just happened in this portion of the text. Rachel dies, and all of a sudden, Jacob changes. The author at this point calls him Israel, and this makes sense. The only real and good thing that Jacob ever truly wanted in his life, the only thing he really pined and sought after with all of his heart, gave his heart to, was Rachel. And he loses Rachel at this point. And so Jacob's gonna change. Now, he's not gonna become the man God wants him to be because at this point in the story, Jacob becomes this defeated kind of whimpering mess. And for the rest of this narrative, this part of the narrative, he's gonna be the cynical old man in the background of the story. And he doesn't wanna go to Egypt. He doesn't wanna take any chances. He doesn't wanna do anything. I'm not letting you go there, down there with with, uh, Benjamin. And this is notable that the author at least recognized a partial change in him because from this point until Genesis chapter 48, the author's going to bounce back and forth, alternating between using the name Jacob and the name Israel. And one way to read that is this way, where the author's trying to insinuate to us like, pay attention, which person are you dealing with each time I name him a different name in the story? by using one name or the other. And I think there's some truth to that. You might be able to take it a little too far, but when we're dealing with Jacob, the usurper, he's Jacob. And when we're dealing with the man of God's people who gets it and gets God's kingdom, then we're dealing with Israel. And the author can't decide whether it's Jacob or Israel at different times, so he uses both names. And through all the stories that you'll read, when Jacob makes his cameo appearances in the rest of the story, it's either gonna be Jacob or Israel, or Israel or Jacob, or both. The author really can't decide. And here's what I find so interesting. If you jump all the way to the end of Genesis and pick up the very end of his life, of Jacob's life, it's really interesting because this is the moment, this Genesis 35 story where he goes back to where Rachel dies. This is the moment that Jacob hangs on to until his dying breaths. Genesis 47, this is where he finds out that Joseph, Joseph is alive and he goes down to Egypt and Joseph introduces his dad to Pharaoh and he says that Pharaoh has been like a second father to him. Ouch. And in verse 7 of that chapter, it says this. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And I want you to listen to how Jacob answers and who is answering. The author is using a certain name, by the way, Jacob or Israel. Verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult. Now, the last time, let's pause for a second. The last time the word difficult was in the text was when Rachel was giving birth to Benjamin. And then Pharaoh's like, How old are you? And he says, My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. And what's he saying? Jacob is basically saying, Pharaoh, it's good to meet you. I'm 130 years old. My life has been garbage, it's sucked, and I'm not half the man that my fathers were. And this is profound because these are the words from Jacob's own lips. It's how he views his own story, his own life. And essentially he's thrown in the towel. And here's something to note for us. We all have different life experiences. And you might be like Jacob. You used to be this person full of passion and tenacity, created for a purpose and a calling, but somewhere along the way, that calling came and it took you and it got you and it backfired. And we say, you know what, let's follow God, whatever, but, but I'm done. It's all yours, whatever, somebody else can do it. And this seems to be Jacob at this point. And then let's jump ahead a few more verses to Genesis 48 where we find Jacob literally on his deathbed and he calls Joseph in. Now, if you're Jacob, what do you want your dying words to be to your favorite son who you thought was dead and now you've been reunited? Let's check it out. Genesis 48. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength. Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples. And I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now, then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. This is really significant. I don't think we really appreciate what he's doing here. From a Hebrew, from a Jewish perspective, this is super unique. Remember, Ephraim and Manasseh are the two sons born to Joseph from an Egyptian wife his wife who was given to him by his Egyptian adopted surrogate father, Pharaoh. Jacob says, Joseph, bring me your sons because today those two sons become just as much of a son to me as my other sons. I am accepting those two sons as my own. Man, the gravitas of this action of of this moment is super profound. Jacob is doing something earth shatteringly massive here. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Verse 6, any children born to you after them will be yours in the territory they inherit. They will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. In other words, he's on his deathbed and he says, Joseph, listen, God promised me that our family was going to be something. And I want your kids to be a part of that. I want them to be a part of that family. But then he keeps talking. And in verse 7, he brings up, Rachel's death and it says in verse 7 as I was returning from Padan Aram to my sorrow So when Jacob looks back on his life, this is the moment that Jacob hangs on to. He's going to tell Joseph about this His whole life is about Rachel's death. He's telling Joseph about how his mom died But we don't really catch what's being said here in the Hebrew. That phrase to my sorrow Rachel died. The phrase literally means the part where it says to my sorrow literally means because of me or to fault. Joseph, you don't understand. I was on my way to Bethlehem and your mom died and it was my fault. The question is why? And it's hard to figure it out. Like you have to go back through everything, but I think this is why. Way back in the story of Jacob and Laban, when he runs, he finally runs away and Laban is pursuing Jacob. In Genesis 31, Laban accuses Jacob of stealing his household idols. And Jacob doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't know that the idols have been stolen. So Jacob ends up telling Laban, listen, man, if anybody stole your idols, may they be cursed and die. He says that in verse 32. So who took the idols? If you read the story, you find out that Rachel took the idols. And so Jacob's thinking about this and he's like, man, as he thinks about Rachel dying, he's basically saying, look, I said that whoever took them, may they be cursed and die. And now Rachel has died. He's basically, basically telling Joseph, look, it's my fault. Joseph, it, it was my fault that your mom died. And I've been living with that for forever. And it changed me. It's, it, it tore me apart. It defeated me. Now watch what happens next in this deathbed scene. Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? So I want you to notice that the author switches and is now calling him Israel, not Jacob. And from this moment on until Genesis 49, he won't be called Jacob anymore. In this narrative, he's Israel while he's on his deathbed. In this moment, he talks about this thing that changes him. This moment where he he meets his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He becomes Israel. He's changed. The text says, when, when Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are the sons God has given me, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. Wait a minute. Okay, so we've heard that before. Like his own dad, right? You got two sons being blessed and a father that is blind. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. and Now God has allowed me to see your children too. And if you're a grandparent out there, this is a moment, right? I mean, it's a, it's a sharp and poignant moment, be, moment because grandkids can change everything about everything. I mean, that's what I've been told. Verse 12 says then, Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his, on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. And that's an interesting little point there, because the author is describing what Joseph's doing. He's trying to put the firstborn son in front of Israel's right hand, because his dad is blind. Because the firstborn needs to be blessed with the right hand. Verse 14. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Ooh, kind of sounds like his perspective has changed, yeah? 16. The angel has delivered me from all harm. May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. So in other words, with his dying breaths, Israel is teaching Joseph about how God's kingdom works. It's upside down and backwards from what we think. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about two types of blessings when we talked about Jacob and Esau there was a material blessing and a blessing of legacy and they got kind of switched and Esau got the material blessing but God seems to care more much more about the blessing of legacy and that's the point Jacob has not seized the blessing of legacy until this very moment his whole life has been a mess it's been a wreck but in this moment he goes oh on his deathbed he seizes that very calling it's like it's kind of like trying to figure out why Jesus chose Peter over John John was the disciple he loved but he built his church upon Peter and I think it's because Peter's a mess he's not superhuman he doesn't have it all together and we can all relate to Peter I kind of have that feeling I I mean I feel that way about Jacob he's he's the character that you and I can be like oh yeah I'm like that I'm like that too and god wants to build his nation on people like that yeah which means well then god wants to build his kingdom on people like like me and like you verse 20 says he blessed them that day what's he doing there jacob is finally doing a legacy he's done throwing in the towel even though he's at the end of his life he's gone from saying i'm not half the man my father was He's gone from that to looking his son in the eye and going, let me make sure you understand what God called us to. Let me tell you how God works and what he's called our people to. On his deathbed, he says, you take the right path. So what does this mean for us? Let's wrap this up with a few implications. The first one is this. One of the things I walk away from this story with is the realization that God is not really interested in giving us material blessing, but he wants to give us a blessing of legacy. Let that sink in for a minute. God really doesn't care about giving you material blessing. What he cares about is giving you a blessing of legacy where you're going to bless others. And a part of that is the greatest gift you can give your family and your church family is living into and seizing your legacy. What has God blessed you with? Even if the path you've had has been very messed up or difficult or weird, and second, God never gives up on what he's called us to. He never gives up on what he's called you to be. He doesn't ma- it doesn't matter what path you've taken. God's call on your life, the reason he put you here, the thing he called you to does not change. Even if your path has been like a choose-your-own-adventure story and the plot of your life is all kind of screwy, God's call on you, he wants you to be the man or the woman he put you here to be, and it doesn't change you don't reject the call or screw up so badly that God's like, never mind, I can't work with you. You are beyond my reach. No, he's always following us. God is always with us until our dying breaths. going, come on, seize your call. I'm with you. And last, even when you carry around the scars of significant personal mistakes, it doesn't change what God made you for. Even when you carry around horrible decisions and actions crisis accidents or trauma doesn't change what god made you for he's always wanting you to be the person he called you to be he always wants to partner with you and the greatest thing you can give your family is seizing your legacy no matter what the path is that brought you here no matter how late in your story you realize that i don't know how many parents i've talked to who look back on their parenting with regrets maybe even serious mistakes with consequences, but here's the deal. It's never too late to seize legacy. Don't give up. Or how many spouses who would look at their marriage with regrets and hard times and serious mistakes, but it's never too late to seize your legacy. It's never too late to look at your spouse, look at your kids, look at your marriage, look at your family, and say, this is why God has put us here. Even though I've spent my whole life screwing this up, this is what God has put me here for, it's never too late. Even if you wasted every moment up until this one, and tomorrow might be your dying breath, so it was with Jacob, and he changed the course of human history because he was willing to see things and surrender to them to the way that God saw them. Don't give up to your dying breath. Don't give Each week, we end our service with communion. And and this is really what communion is all about, what we've been talking about. We come to Jesus' table, and this is our steadfast belief that it's never too late, that God can always redeem whatever mess you have. There's always forgiveness. There's always a new morning. There's always a new start. And that's what the bread and the juice tell us every single week as they represent Jesus' body and blood. And I don't know what you're dealing with today, but God wants you to seize legacy, legacy. It really can change the course of everything for everybody, especially those around you today. You can't change what happened yesterday. and You can't change what you brought with you up until this point. But you can change what you do today. And you can change its impact on tomorrow. Until next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.